0: Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church New Year, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Good morning, I'm Gable Gaspi, I'm the worship pastor here and I'm part of the preaching team and I'm really excited about this series. I love the Straight Out of Egypt. That's, that's Tim's brainchild, by the way, that clever little twist on that. And in it, we're looking at the Exodus story. And the Exodus story is about God freeing the Israelites. And he doesn't just free them. He takes them out of 400 years of living in oppression and slavery. It's all they had ever known. So he can't just free them, but he has to teach them how to live like free people. You see, when you've been a slave for your entire life, and it's all you've ever known, it's not just about the act of being free. It's not just about getting the chains off, but it's also about learning how to live free. And last week, we started off the series, Tim talked about the story of the burning bush, where God first spoke to Moses, and he, he tells him that he's going to use him to approach Pharaoh and to take on Egypt. And in it, you see this, this very insecure, bewildered man who's just like, uh, me, like, who am I? You know, I? I don't speak good, you know, it's well, you know, but he, that's how he goes about it. I don't speak good, I, I, no one's going to listen to me. And I love God's response because he doesn't just say, oh, you know, you're, you're good enough, Moses, you know, you, you've got it. He doesn't say, you know, you is kind, you is important, you is special. He doesn't say you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. What he, how he responds is he says, it doesn't matter who you are. I am. I'm enough. It doesn't matter all your faults. I I didn't make a mistake in picking you. I wasn't waiting for Frank to walk through and talk as the burning bush. I was waiting for you. And I'm going to use your insecurities. I'm going to use your weakness so that they know that it's me. Because I'm the one who's going to bring them out of Egypt. And so... After this back and forth, you know, Moses throwing out his excuses and God just kind of pushing him along, uh, Moses finally surrenders and he says, okay, since you know my faults and you're, you're picking me still, uh, what's the plan? And this is where we pick up today. We're going to look at the, the mechanism that God uses to force Egypt and Pharaoh to release the Israelites. We're going to look at the plagues, the ten plagues of Egypt. And I don't know, it was an interesting story. When I, I remember reading it as a kid, you know, you, you got your pop-up Bible or your like picture Bible and you got this, these little cute cartoon characters of these like Egyptian guys and the, they're covered with boils or, you know, you, you go to Sunday school class and they'd throw the flannel graph up and then they would put like a, a pyramid there and then there'd be a hailstorm coming down. They're like, and then God destroyed these things. And then as a kid, your eyes just get really big and you're like, wow. God is really strong, and he does crazy things. And as I read it as an adult now, uh, it hits me a little differently. I look at it realizing the destruction that the plagues had. When I read it as though it's actually history, that these things actually happen, the weight and the devastation of the plagues, they, they, they don't sit as nicely Lives were ruined. Lives were lost. This was not just a story of of a bunch of neat little parlor tricks that God did. But rather it's a story of an utter destruction where where God decimates a people. Where he drags Pharaoh out and beats him up. And he puts him in a chokehold where he has no choice but to submit and tap out. As I read through the story what plagues my mind, pun intended, boom, still got it, is this question why does God have to use the plagues? Why is that what he chooses to do? And see the Exodus story is about God freeing people and teaching them how to live free. And as I read it I see that God sends the plagues because in order to be free, you have to come to the realization that it is God who frees you. It's God who sets you free. And sometimes he has to destroy false gods. And he has to destroy false senses of security and bring you to the realization so that you know that he is God. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Exodus chapter 7, that's where we're going to be sitting. The plagues occur over uh, like four chapters, 7 through 11, and uh, this morning we're just going to kind of look at the beginning part where God says what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. So we're going to look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. And like I said, it, this is just after they've had this back and forth between, between Moses and God, well, I'm not enough, well... Doesn't matter, because I am. And Moses goes, okay, all right, so I'll, I'll do it. What, what do you want me to do? Here's what he says, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. This isn't a request. This isn't an ask. He's gonna, you're going to tell Pharaoh to do it. It's a command. And here's where it gets really interesting. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, though I hit him with plague after plague and I increase the intensity, he will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. I'm going to show the world that they're different in order to show the world that I'm different. And the Egyptians, this is, this is where it gets really interesting too, he does this also because, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand, against Egypt, and I bring the Israelites out of it. There are three characters that I want to spend some time talking about today in this story, and the first one is Pharaoh. In verse 3, it says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God's plan for Pharaoh was to harden his heart, and this this bothered me as I read it. I wish Pharaoh would have just let him go, like, Then they could just avoid all the destruction, all the wrath that takes place, all these things if he would have just said, okay, let my people, all right, go ahead. Just go, it's fine. We've got it covered. But according to God's pregame plan that he's sharing with Moses, he says he's going to harden his heart and though God hits him with plague after plague, Pharaoh isn't going to listen and God says he's going to do that. He's doing that so that he can lay his hand on Egypt. His plan is to harden his heart so that the plagues will come. Why? Why does God do this? He does it so that he can send the plagues and work through the plagues. The story of the plagues is really a story of a war. It's a battle between the little G gods and the big G God which in all honesty, it doesn't look like a war or battle because one side just gets utterly obliterated. It's very, very lopsided. When you study the plagues within the context of Egyptian culture, you see that each plague was an attack on a certain deity within the uh, Egyptian religion. See, the Nile, got, the Nile gets churned, all the water gets churned into blood in order to prove that the river god that they, they sacrificed to was powerless. He couldn't do anything to change it back. There, there is this one God who had a frog head, right? And he was the God of resurrection. And God does this, this really, it's kind of a ridiculous plague. Some of them are really devastating. This one, he's like, I'm, you think you got the God of resurrection? I'll show, you, I'll show you the God of resurrection. Every year they had this festival where a few frogs came out and it was, it was something they celebrated. Well, God flips it on its head it says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna overrun you with frogs. The Niles just said all these frogs are gonna come out. And it gets ridiculous. He goes, you're gonna open your ovens. There's gonna be frogs in the oven. You're gonna go, Pharaoh, you're gonna go into your palace. You're gonna go in there. There's frogs everywhere. You can't even see the ground. Then you're gonna go in your bedroom. There's gonna be frogs in your bedroom. You're gonna open up your bed. There's gonna be frogs in your bed. That's what it says in there. There's gonna be frogs every I just imagine like maybe one of them is like doing that. Hello, my honey. Hello, like every time. But God's going, you think you're the God of resurrection? I'll, give you, I'll, I'll show you who the God of resurrection is. I'll give it to you until so you had it up to your eyeballs. And so each plague, you know, there, there was a God who oversaw the crops. And God sends in these locusts, and they eat it, and they decimate it, and they destroy it, and he proves he's not the God of the crops. He's the God of the craps. He's got nothing. That's essentially what they said in the olden days. In the, in the Old Testament, when they talk about Beelzebub, That's really just any other god other than God. It's the god of the dung heap. And that's what God is proving, that all other gods are just small, powerless gods. He he not only hits them in their economy and in their stomachs, but he attacks and assaults their faulty ideology and their sense of security. But make no mistake, the main little g-god that God is assaulting with the plagues was not these gods with the different animal heads, but they had this earthly physical deity that they worshipped. You see, Pharaoh wasn't just a king or some political figure in their culture. He wasn't just some authority figure, but he was seen as a god. He saw himself as a god. For as long as he could remember, people treated him as a god because he was born a god in a long line and lineage of little g gods. He believed himself to be the physical embodiment of divinity in in the supernatural. His entire life, his word was always absolute and always unchallenged. No one ever said no to him. No one ever told him what to do. He spoke and things were built. Things that we still marvel at today. And You you think that does something to his ego? He speaks giant pyramids into being. As far as he knew it, the Pharaoh believed he had absolute rule and authority and power. But this God, the God of the Israelites, is smashing him into submission. And I think the reason why God hardens Pharaoh's heart is really quite simple. It's so that it is not by Pharaoh's will and power that the Israelites are free. God makes sure that the story doesn't read, Pharaoh set them free. This story is about the God who sets the captives free, because only our God has the might to do so. If Pharaoh had said yes, then he gets to go on believing that he's the final authority, that he, in fact, is a God. But God sets it up so that his pride and his faulty belief that he's a God plays into the whole thing. And he gets to hit him harder and harder and harder. And every time God tells him to let his people go, Pharaoh, he can't give in because the moment he does, he's admitting that someone is more powerful than him. This is why he digs in his heels and his heart gets harder and harder until the last plague breaks him. The last plague hits Pharaoh the hardest. I mean, all the plagues hit him hard because God is telling him what to do and then he's punishing him for not doing it. And each plague is a blow to his ego, his belief in the fact that he's all powerful, and his heart gets harder and harder. But the final plague is more than a man can bear. And it's his his false beliefs His ideal that he's a deity is exposed. The final plague is where God sends the angel of death to kill all the firstborn in Egypt who don't trust or follow God's instructions. And this is a direct assault on Pharaoh and his beliefs. There are two things that this plague brings to light for Pharaoh. Number one, Pharaoh thought that he had the ultimate power of the Israelites. If you go back to the beginning of the book, what happens in the Exodus story? The Pharaoh sees that the Israelites are growing too much in number, so what does he do? Kills all the firstborn. You think about the the amount of power you would feel you have over a people, over a nation, over the world, when you could just speak, and you speak such destruction. When God hits him with this plague, he shows him that he does not have ultimate power over life, what the God of Israel does. The second thing it shows him is not only that he isn't a God, but that he is truly powerless against this God. So he believed he had this authority, he had this office, he had, his word was divine, it was his birthright. He came as an earthly representative in a divine presence. He was a little g-god in a long line of other little g-gods. And that line was interrupted with the death of his son. And there was nothing he could do. I mean, his son was supposed to be divine, stricken. The whole line is messed up now. And there's nothing he could do. He does it right within Pharaoh's palace walls. He has this great army. He has stockpiles of weapons. He has unlimited wealth around him, and yet he's completely powerless to stop it. He could not wrestle or do battle with the angel of death this little G God was powerless against the big G God. See, God had to put Pharaoh into submission because in order for it to be true freedom, it couldn't just be Pharaoh's ruling or mercy. It couldn't be Pharaoh getting the glory by letting them go on, on his terms. God had to bring Pharaoh to the realization that it is God who sets people free. The second set of characters I want to talk about is the Israelites. Now these are the slaves in the story that are being set free. And in verse four, God says this to Moses, he says, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Now the plagues occurred because it wouldn't have been enough to just set them free. He could have just like teleported them out. But as I pointed out earlier, it couldn't have also been done by just making Pharaoh say yes because if he had said yes, then the the Israelites would have always still been under subject to Pharaoh was by his, his mercy and his grace that they were set free. But they had to witness that it was by the works of God that they were set free. See, if all you had ever known was that Pharaoh was in control of your life, for over 400 years, he told them what to do, what they will do, what they will eat, where they will live, He wasn't just their oppressor, but in a weird way, he was also their provider. He was, in a way, their authority, their little g, God. And God had to decimate this false God because Pharaoh's rule and authority was all they had ever known. And if they had just been set free without Pharaoh's rule being shown as completely powerless, the Stockholm Syndrome would have set in, and it would have been so powerful that they probably would have never left. Because I'll give you a little spoiler alert for the rest of the story. They struggle with this concept all the way through the wilderness. They're in the, they, they witness these, mer- these signs, these wonders. They see God beat Pharaoh down. And yet just a few chapters later, they're, they're by the mountain and they're, quick, gather the gold, let's build a golden calf. They're walking in the desert, God's literally making bread fall from the sky, and they're like, well, it was better back in Egypt, we had more food. It's crazy how quick we forget the miracle that God sets us free. See, God had to show them and remind them of who he is. He's their God, the one true God, and he is different. God is essentially saying to them, you are not ruled by the Egyptians or Pharaoh. You don't belong to them, you belong to me. And I rule over everything and they are powerless against me. It wouldn't have been freedom if God didn't make this statement through the plagues. Because in order for the Israelites to be free, they had to come to the realization that it is God who sets them free. And God had to destroy their false gods and the authority that ruled over them. The third group I want to talk about in this story is the Egyptians. In verse 4, this is where it gets really interesting. God says he sends the plagues not just to bring Israel out of Egypt, but so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God tells Moses that the reason for the plagues and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is so that he can bring out the Israelites and so that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. One of the craziest parts of this whole story to me is this, this uh, power shift that happens, not just for the Israelites, but for the Egyptians. As you read the story, the story opens, and the first couple of, uh, the first few wonders that God performs through Moses, uh, there are these Egyptian priests that replicate the same thing. Moses goes out, he throws his staff on the ground, it becomes a, a giant snake. The priests come out, the magicians come out, they throw their staffs on the gr- ground, they become snakes. Now granted, note, God's snake swallows the other ones up. I think that means something. Plague number two, God turns all their entire water source into blood. The fish die, go belly up. The place stinks. Pharaoh turns to the magicians. They're able to, to churn, I don't know where they found the fresh water, but they turn water into blood. And it doesn't say that they faked it, it says somehow they were able to do it. Then the frogs. The frogs come. God brings lots of frogs. They're able to, like, poof, there's more frogs. I think what's funny about this story, is, quick side note, is that they're not able to, like, fix anything. They can just add more of what is already the problem. We got, we got blood in the water, more blood in the water. We got frogs. We can make more frogs. And that's, that's it. And, and this, because they can, they can replicate these things, it, it actually is, like, one of the first Kickstarter agents to hardening Pharaoh's heart. Like, yeah, I've got some power too. I've got some tricks up my sleeve. But there's a, a shift that happens by, the, by the, uh, the third plague where Moses slams his staff on the ground and the dust comes up and it becomes these gnats and mosquitoes. Because so the magicians can't do it. And they're, they're dumbfounded. They're scratching their heads and they go... Uh, that's the finger of god like we can't explain that there's something bigger and you need to pay attention but what does pharaoh do his heart just gets harder and what even happens as we go a little bit further by plague seven god tells him hey i'm gonna send this hail like egypt has never seen before it's going to destroy the plants it's going to destroy all the cattle it's going to destroy any any workers or slaves that you have out working in the fields they're all going to be killed." So Moses, per God's instruction, says this is what's going to happen. You should bring them in because this doesn't sound good, (laughs) right? And the crazy thing is some of the Egyptian officials listen. They listen to what Moses says because they see that there is a bigger God at work here than they've ever seen before. By chapter 11, we read that Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. See, God uses the plagues to make himself known to those who have never known him. We see the very people who are being afflicted getting free because they are getting a picture of a bigger and better God. Pharaoh is a ruler, but he isn't God. There's a God much bigger in all of creation and all of history are subject to him. This is freedom. They don't have to go on sacrificing to little g-gods, but God sent the plague so that the Egyptians will know him because in order for them to be free, they have to come to the realization that it is God who sets people free. And God had to destroy their false gods in order to bring them to that realization. The plagues were unavoidable. As we, as we look at this, this verse where he's, God's laying out his plan, they, they, they were gonna happen. They were God's plan to reveal himself, to set people free and to teach them how to be free. And there are plagues in our life that we cannot avoid. Now we don't, typically, I don't think anybody in here has faced like plagues of biblical proportions. Correct me if I'm wrong later, please. Like if you, your whole family was infected with the boils or you had a frog incident. But there are types of plagues that God allows us to walk through in order to reveal himself to us. And I wanna talk about these two different types of plagues. There are the plagues of circumstance. These are the events that happen to us and they're tragic and destructive. In one way or another, they leave their mark on our life and they change us. These are the events that God allows us to walk through because he has a grander purpose and he knows it will draw us nearer to him and make us dependent upon him. If you worship and depend upon your own strength, he may take away your health. If you worship and you depend upon your ability to provide, he may send the locusts to eat away your career and your 401K. If you worship your spouse or your kids, he may allow them to be stricken. He may allow them to go wayward just to show that those aren't all in all, but that he is. It's a crazy concept that, that only Christianity embraces. That the suffering is what God uses to draw us near to him. It's, it's insane. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, a Grief Observed, where he's, it's actually his journal writings about when his wife dies. He says that God is like this, uh, this great destroyer. He destroys uh, our bad beliefs, basically. He, he says, we build our house of cards. We go, this is what life is all about. This is what God is like, and we build this little house of cards. This is what's really important, and God comes along, and with pain, he just knocks it over. Not to be mean, but just to show you that no, that's not it. That's not me. That's not, that's not everything. That's just a house of cards. Honestly, we, when we're in the midst of it, we often don't feel the purposes when we're in the chaos and the pain. Truth be told, sometimes we won't even figure it it out in this lifetime. It it really troubled me in the story of Job. There's this guy who just goes through so much suffering and we read it and it's great because there's this conversation between God and this accuser and they're going back and forth, but Job never hears this conversation. He just sees the pain the affliction and all these things and he's asking God why and the whole story ends with God just going, I'm God. It's crazy. But the the beautiful truth that we get to hang on to in the Christian life is this. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said it this way. He said, for the Christian, joy is central and pain is peripheral. For the Christian, we know the end. We know where we're going. We know who God is and what he desires and and all the, the great things. Joy is central. And everything that's painful is just trying to distract from that or point towards that. But he says, for the non-believer, all they know is pain. Pain is central. Everybody's going towards destruction. And the only hope you have is that joy is is peripheral. Like maybe I can get distracted enough to forget about the destination. But that's the great thing about the Christian life is that joy is central. There's also an unavoidable plague of sin that we face. Not just the plague of circumstance, but sin. In this life, we will never be fully rid of the sin that is within us. In Matthew 5, uh, Jesus gives his great sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's really interesting. He takes all these, these really famous laws from the Old Testament, laws that they all knew. Like he goes, you have heard it was said, don't murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister, anyone who calls them a fool, who thinks of them as less than them. That's the real danger. He like flips these laws on their head, like like you thought this was the line? Really, the, the, the problem, this is the line, it's up here. You, you've heard, it was said, do not commit adultery, and like a lot of the people in the room were, were probably like, well, there wasn't a room, they are on a big hillside, but they are probably thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm good. You can check that off, I haven't done that. He goes, well, I tell you that any, anyone who looks at somebody with lust in their, in their eyes, who sees them as an object that could be used for their pleasure, that's the real sin, that's the real danger. And the Sermon on the Mount isn't there to like, raise the bar, a new standard that we can live up to. He just points out how desperate we are for God, that no one can avoid this plague of sin. And so I don't think that he was, he, he was just pointing out our need for sin. I, I think Paul hit it really hard, too. Uh, in the epistles, he talks about, he just kind of shares his own personal struggle. He goes, I, I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. And I have this thorn in my flesh, this thing that I've asked God to remove, this thing that I struggle with and struggle with. And I said, God, can you remove it? But God doesn't remove it. And Paul says, he does that to remind me of how dependent upon him I am. It's a reminder of the grace that we need. And I have seen and experienced stories where people are caught in the plague of their sin, and God uses it to draw them even closer, because his grace covers over a multitude of sins. Because where the sin increases, the grace abounds all the more. And does that mean we go on sinning? May it never be, because as we encounter the grace, we struggle. That's what I like about it. Paul doesn't say, I, I just give into to this. He says, I struggle with this thing. And if you're struggling, that's May you be encouraged this morning. If you're struggling with something, that means you're still alive. That means you're still fighting something. So we, we cannot avoid the plagues that come, but what we can avoid is seeing them wrongly. We must let the plagues in our lives make us dependent on God all the more. So here's my summary. Some people are like Pharaoh. God sends the plagues to set them free from the false god that is the big I, the you. There are some of of you sitting in this room that you would not verbally claim to be a god, but most of us fall in and out of self-worship. And we think that we are the governing authority in our lives and God has to wrestle us and beat us into submission to show us that we aren't in control but it's him who sets us free. Some people are like the Israelites, and God sent the plagues in your life, whatever you're going through, whatever struggle it is, whether it's the plague of circumstance, he left me, cancer's back, raised in a home without a father. Whatever plague it is, whatever circumstance it is, God sends those plagues in our life to remind us of the God that we've known all along and to show us that all other little g-gods that this world has to offer are powerless. For the Christian, your job is to remember, something we did this morning as we took communion. It's like the number one command you hear over and over and over again in the Old Testament, remember, remember, why? Because we're quick to forget that it is God who sets us free. So remember, finally some of us in this room, some of you are, are like the Egyptians. God sends the plagues to destroy the false gods that oppress you. The gods that you've you've been worshipping for so long because you never knew that there was something bigger, something so so much more. You maybe came in here because you thought that church was just the icing on the cake of your prosperity. Like, okay, I, I'll I've got all these other things worked out. Now I'll do this thing. So afterlife, taking care of, check. And God sends plagues in there to destroy these false gods that oppress you so that you can know that God is all in all. He's the one who sets you free. For the believer, God sends the plagues because they remind us that he is the one who sets us free. They remind us of how dependent we are on him. For the non-believer, if you're sitting in here, and this is all new, and you're, you're going through difficult, terrible times, broken marriage, runaway kids, whatever, whatever it is, whatever plague is in your life that you're scratching your head and you're asking why, know that God uses the plagues in our lives in order for us to be free. Because in order to be free, you have to come to the realization that it is God who sets you free. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you move in such a way like you have done that we can't explain it any other way than knowing that it is you that's moving. May you use whatever's going on in our life to bring us and draw us nearer to you. That we see a God who is full of love and grace. Your love is deep. Your love is wide and it covers us. Your love is fierce. Your love is strong. It is furious. Remind us of your grace. Teach us how to live free. We thank you that you've freed us. but We pray that you continue this lifelong lesson of how to live free. In Jesus' name we pray thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.cobleschurch.info and we'll see you next time.